Hello, and welcome to Weber Gallagher's Workers' Compensation Academy, a podcast where our attorneys discuss how to manage risk to improve your bottom line. Now to our attorneys to tell you about today's featured episode. This is Pete Harrison, and I'm here with Chris Davis, and uh, we're going to talk about managing workers' compensation risk in Pennsylvania. Chris, uh, you want to tell the folks a little about your background? Sure, I'd be happy to, Pete. Um, so I'm a Pennsylvania workers' compensation attorney. I've been a uh, workers' compensation attorney for over 20 years, and I practice primarily in southeast uh, Delaware, uh, Delaware County, Philadelphia, uh, counties like that. How about you, Pete? How long have you uh, been doing this? Uh, quite a while, Chris, uh, like you. And uh, like yourself, we're both partners in the Philadelphia-based office of Weber Gallagher. And we primarily service southeastern Pennsylvania, but also collaborate with our other partners throughout the state, um, serving all parts of the, uh, the Commonwealth. Um, today we're going to talk about managing risk in Pennsylvania workers' compensation matters. I guess when we were planning this out, we were talking about you know how to do it, and we decided to do it into break it into two parts: uh, pre-litigation management, and also look at litigation management. So, in that first topic, pre-litigation management, um, can you give kind of the listeners an idea of uh, what are some relevant topics that they might want to be looking out for if the case is not in actual litigation, um, but it should be on their radar? Sure. You, you know, I think that it, if you get a claim petition in and you're sued, and if you haven't taken steps before then, you're really behind the eight ball. You know, don't you think? Oh, sure, sure. I, I mean, because the, the claimant's attorney has lined up his or her case gotten their evidence together and you get this in the mail and you uh, send it to your attorney you have 20 days to answer it and you're really totally behind the eight ball scrambling to investigate the case in a very compressed amount of time and the other side has their all ducks in a line and you're trying to figure out is this compensable or not and that and if you haven't done a lot of the work beforehand, you're really at a big disadvantage. So when we were thinking about what to talk about, one of the things really talk about is to try to do a lot of due diligence before you get sued, because that can also prevent claims from happening in the first place. Or if you do get them, if you do get sued, you have a better way and you have processes for handling it, I think. Right. And, you know, the idea of managing risk, in my mind, is that, you know, you're, you're always going to have risk. Um, you're always going to have claims. You're always going to have injuries. Uh, the question is, how are you going to respond to those um, claims in a way that, you know, reduces exposure to the client? Um, you know, and, and that's where the pre-litigation management comes in. Um, I think one good idea to look at globally or for, from a 30,000-foot view is, you know, try to get an understanding of what kind of risk you're dealing with by looking at a, an annual review of different kinds of injuries. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So, you know, if you're, if you're a hospital and if you have nurses that are getting hurt in 
a certain kind of way at certain times, you have to look at different ergonomic solutions to try to avoid that. Um, what you can't do is just ignore the problem because it's going to repeat itself. Um, so it is good. It is good to look at that to see how people do get hurt. And I think the other thing that that does is it engenders goodwill in the workplace because the workforce feels that the company, whoever it is, has their back, cares about them, and that goes a long way towards a preventing injuries in the first place. And if an injury does happen, there's a reservoir of goodwill that's been developed because the uh, the injured worker feels that the employer is on their side and didn't want this to happen, took steps to try to prevent it. And um, I think that goes a long way. And a lot of times that sometimes prevents people from even filing a claim in the first place. So it's that any amount of time and energy, from my perspective, that you can put in analyzing why you have injuries um, and how to prevent them, it's time well spent, don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the important things is, and this is probably more relevant to a specific uh, segment of the, the economy where, you know, you mentioned hospitals. I had a situation where we represented a large manufacturing uh, company in Philadelphia, and it was, you know, uh, a few years ago, and the manufacturing process was a, a straight line, um, sort of like the old assembly lines that you would see in the movies. And we were getting um, numerous re reports of injuries, specifically with the hands and, and the back and the feet. And um, what we did was we went in there and started looking at it. And eventually, you know, with the help of uh, ergonomic people, we came up with that this, this this process was completely flawed, and we moved it into a what's known as a cell process, where we took the straight line and made it into sort of a cube. We had the workers working, you know, different jobs and rotating them so that there wasn't that repetitive strain on their hands or on their feet, and that really kind of changed the culture, as you mentioned, of the workforce, and you know they were really appreciative of it. So not only did we see a decrease in injuries, but also an increase in, in goodwill because the workers weren't bored standing on a straight line. Um, you know, I also think that, I mean, that, that's interesting. I, I think that when you're in, um, in, in terms of managing risk, one of the things that you can take advantage of, and this is kind of be, sound like a little bit of a shameless plug, but here goes anyway. Take advantage of your defense counsel. So in other words, bring the defense counsel in um, and you can meet with uh, the different stakeholders of your company, bring your broker in, and take a look at different aspects of what you're doing. Right. Um, see if your panel providers are delivering what you need them to deliver. Um, the best programs from a risk standpoint tend to be the ones where it's a team concept of having the Workers' Compensation Defense Council, the broker, and the employer all on the same page working proactively before the claims happen um, in, a, in an effort to reduce risk. And, you know, a, a panel 
is very important in that. Um, in Pennsylvania, we do have the ability to uh, control medical treatment of the claimant for up to 90 days after a, a report of injury um, if certain things are, are done, right? You have to have the, uh, the duties and rights letter signed at the time of hiring and then at a time reasonably after, and then that sort of triggers an obligation of the claimant to treat with this panel, um, which has to meet other specifics under the Workers' Comp Act including what types of doctors are on there and what kind of chiropractors are on there and things like that. And if the stars all align, we have the ability to sort of manage that piece of risk as well. And I'm always amazed at the panel piece because you get, typically what happens is you get a case in and the person is, after two weeks after the injury, is treating off the panel. And the employer or the insurance company will say, um, well, they have a panel. How can they do that? And then, you know, I'll typically ask, okay, was all the documentation properly done? And, you know, it seems like this is an exaggeration, but 99 times out of 100, it wasn't done. And then I have to tell them, well, you have a panel, but you can't enforce your rights under the panel. Right. And they'll say, well, we shouldn't have to pay for treatment outside the panel. I said, that's true, but you have to do what you're supposed to do. So... You know, I think um, reviewing those forms, making sure that you have the processes in place are going to really pay off. Right. Um, and, and it's easier, quite frankly, for the larger employers, sort of what I've seen, the larger the employer, the more specialized um, risk people that they have in place to, to kind of go into that and make sure that they have the, the duties and rights form signed at the time of hire and at a time reasonably after and that the panel requirements are met. Um, a lot of times I'll get a case in and I'll look at what, you know, who's on the panel and, you know, it doesn't line up with um, the requirements under the Pennsylvania Workers' Compact and, you know, that in and of itself can be a, a, a fatality. Right. So, like, for big employers, they're, you know, they are able to put those um, safeguards in place and meet the panel requirements. A lot of times what I find with insurance company insureds is some insurance companies will insure different types of employers, you know, some small employers, midsize and large. And for the, the small employers, they hardly ever have the panel information in place. So the insurance company is writing this risk. And they're not getting the advantage of the panel. No. So for the for the insurance folks out there who might be listening to this, um, I think it's important that when um, underwriting is writing the business that that you work with uh, defense counsel to make sure that your insureds have the panel documentation in place. Right. I mean, on the on the insurance side, when you're dealing with medium and small employers. What I find is the problem is a sort of a, a lack of continuity in that, you know, you, you get people who are kind of coming and going and they might not know, um, for example, that, you know, you need something at the time of hire. So that that piece is missing or, you know, they might not know another piece of it. So if you can work with um, your defense counsel who might, you know, serve as sort of um, a reservoir of information that 
is where you want to go um, with that. Because keep in mind the other thing is too, you know, you might have a small or medium insured who is being written a policy and their policy period is over with insurance company one and they switch over to insurance company two. But that claimant might be, you know, so that claimant might be there for different policy periods with different expectations and different people working on the file. So, you know, but if you can have one uh, defense attorney, perhaps, you would have that element of continuity, which might help you, you know, in the case of a claim down the road. It's like switching general practitioners every week for your general your physical exam. Right, exactly. Not a good idea. Exactly. You know, the other, the, the other piece of this that I was thinking about what to talk about on this topic is um, the education piece. So um, it's very important that the people on the ground, especially for the, the large employer that can implement this, is for people on the ground to understand what the process is and how to properly investigate a case. And that, and that starts with good note-taking and also understanding uh, what the general uh, requirements are for providing notice in Pennsylvania under the Workers' Compensation Act and tracking information and tracking medical treatment. And I think that if people have a sense of what the system's about, then what that does is that creates a process where there's good information that's delivered to uh, defense counsel if the case does go into litigation. You know, you've taken, you've taken statements possibly that lock people in. You're able to track uh, medical treatment. You might find out about some other cause of an accident or somebody's got a hobby and by the way, they hurt their knee bowling and not on the job. So there's, I think there's a lot of value in um, giving uh, staff in services on what the process is. And that, another shameless plug, that's something that we right. do. Sure. I mean, I can, I can tell you that typically the larger the employer, the better the investigation in that you're going to have a, a person in a risk manager role who's going to be able to kind of effectuate the investigation. Right. And Conversely, then, the, the smaller the employer, you know, I, I represent insurance companies where they insure small companies, you know, companies with 50 people or less, and they might only have had one or two workers' compensation claims in the last, you know, five or six years. There's really no mechanism in place for them to investigate. Now, I had one of those, you know, just the other day, and typically what I do in that situation is when I get the file, I'll look it over and I'll travel out to the employer to meet with them and review the allegations in the claim petition and also to assess how they're going to do in a situation in front of a judge. I did that in this case and, um, you know, there were four people that I interviewed. During the interview process, a fifth person came in. We started talking to the fifth person. The fifth person turns out to be a really good friend of the claimant who knew the claimant from a prior company before, said that the claimant was wearing neck braces and back braces before this alleged incident, and also spent time with the claimant after the alleged injury, um, during which time you know she saw him mowing the grass and fixing his car and doing all these things. 
Well, basically, by going out there and meeting with the employer and discovering this this witness, this witness is going to be potentially, you know, a star witness that we would have never had an idea about if we didn't do a proper and thorough investigation. Yeah, I, I, that makes perfect sense. Um, so, you know, all those are, you know, these are all important things to do before you get before you get sued and if you do get sued. So, so, uh, so switching it over, what happens from a, so that was sort of pre-litigation, let's move into litigation management. What are the, some of the issues for the listeners to, to sort of consider when you're looking at that? Sure. Um, besides moving your company outside of the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. <laughs> so assuming that, assuming that you can't do that, we're just kidding. But, um, I think you have to, the next step is you have to, is just as a catch your breath for a second and think about what judge you're in front of and who opposing counsel is. Right. You know, know, oftentimes I hear like, so I'll get a case in and then it'll get assigned to a judge. And one of the questions that comes up from the, the employer is why did it go to that judge? Um, And you know, typically I, I say, well, I can't tell you why it went to that judge. Usually there's three or four judges per county, um, and it's a rotating basis. Um, but typically where the case goes is based on where the claimant lives under the theory that it's more convenient for the parties that way. So typically if your claimant lives, for example, in Philadelphia, it'll be a Philadelphia case. If the claimant lives, let's say, in Allentown, it'll be an Allentown case. Um, So that'll give you kind of some idea going into it. And then when you look at the specific judges, um, you know, I think it's important to tell the client proactively what you think of that judge um, and what your history has been with that judge. I I think that's completely fair. I think one of the great disservices that you could do is... You can get um, you get a case in, and you think, "Wow, you know, this is really interesting. I'd love to litigate this thing to conclusion. We have a really good chance." But I think that if you're really doing what you should be doing for the client, you have to disclose to them in the most honest way possible what you're dealing with and what the risk is that you're dealing with. And that goes to the judges because if you're practicing in a certain area, we know the tendencies of all the judges. Some judges, you have a better chance from a defense perspective. Other judges, you have a better chance from a claimant's perspective. And you can pretty much nail down the percentage chances of success that you have pretty early on. Based on based on the the judge that you have, um, right. so and I think that I think that you have to have a frank conversation with your client about what they're up against, good or bad. Sure, because I think that you know, let's say you have a situation where the claimant is receiving repetitive pay, and you know you're you've been assigned to a judge that you know is very claimant oriented, and the litigation is going to go on for you know, eight to nine months, during which time the claim is is going to be paid. By not telling your client that, you know, you're in front of a very claimant-oriented judge, you know, it increases the probability that this claim is going to receive 
ongoing benefits for a period of time when, when you know, and then settle the case. Well, you know, why not have that conversation on the front end because of the decreased probability and save the client some money and try to resolve it if you can early on in litigation. Yeah, I agree. And then I think you also have to look at who the claimant's attorney is. You know, I, I say that just from a defense attorney's perspective. Um, we know just just as judges have tendencies, uh, other lawyers have tendencies. And there's some lawyers that like to litigate cases and some lawyers that like to settle cases. And some seem reasonable from our perspective and some don't seem reasonable. And, you know, that's information that, that has to be conveyed as well. And that all goes into the mix of figuring out how to had to eliminate or reduce your exposure. And you know, the other thing that um, I think is something to keep in mind is that when, when you're deciding whether or not to litigate a case or not, um, there's also potentially other concerns that you might have as an employer that may go beyond that specific case that might be, that might have to be taken into account. So. Um, you know, that's, that's another possible consideration. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting that like, if you're a large employer, um, you might have a case in front of a judge and you think this is, you know, the end all be all case, but because of the size of the employer, that worker's compensation judge might have five or six other cases where you're in front of. So, you know, how you react in one case might change the judge's perspective, if you will, in other cases. So you always have to be aware of what, not only in your case specifically, but what else is, is you know, sort of in the, the kitty, if you will. Right, because you're looking at a bucket of, of risk. You just don't have that one case. You may have multiple cases and a potential recurring chance for other cases in that area if you're a big employer. Right. So you want to have a, the reputation of being a reasonable employer so that that judge knows that if you're not settling the case, they're thinking there must be a good reason and you, you get their attention. Right. And, and, you know, reputation, I think, you know, you've heard it, it's everything. And in workers' compensation, in, at least in Pennsylvania, it is because, you know, these judges are going to be on the scene, if you will, for a number of years. They're going to see the same employer over and over and over again. And if you're taking positions that are sort of inconsistent with other cases in front of them and, you know, doing, taking crazy positions, for example, in one case where you might not have another case, it could damage your overall repu 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 reputation. And I, I also have a, I have a recommendation I just want to share, especially for big employers. If you have, if you're a big employer and if you have recurring cases in um, a certain jurisdiction, I don't know how you feel about this, Chris. I'm just going to throw it out to you. Yeah. Um, I think that it's a good idea to put a face on a big corporation. So I would agree with that. So that the risk manager comes or somebody from employee health or somebody so that when the judge sees that big employer has a case in front of him or her, they start thinking, 
less about big employer and they say, oh, that's John's case or that's Sally's case. And it just, I think it levels the playing field a little bit with because you're going up against a person that is injured and is claiming disability and it's a very, you know, let's face it, it's a very, um, it's a hard time for them and it's a very um, traumatizing and stressful time for a lot of them. So there's all the sympathies are, are sort of going one way, but if you put a human face on the other side, I think you balance things out a little bit. Yeah, I think that's an important thing. I mean, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to go into a situation where I'm, you know, where, where my employer is considered like big pharma or big oil or, you know, some, you know, big rich company that doesn't have a face and it's facing. Look, you want to be, it's like the judge says, oh, it's, it's Chris. Right. He's here. Exactly. Exactly. Like, you know, lovable you. Right. So that when, you know, I go to, you know, resolve the case, you know, I can get a, a more fair shake for the client. Um, you know, and, 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 and speaking of settlements, you know, in Pennsylvania, we do have the ability to settle our cases by what's known as a, a compromise and release. Um, we can do settlements for indemnity only, medical, um, you know, different pieces of the case. And as we get to settlement, um, one of the things that we confront in Pennsylvania is the concept of mandatory mediation, which means that every case that's placed in the litigation gets assigned a different judge, a mandatory mediation judge, and we have to go in there and basically talk about settlement. Now, we don't have to settle the case, but we have to have that conversation. And that in and of itself is very interesting because oftentimes we're asking these workers' compensation judges to wear two hats. They are fact finders and they are mediators. And many times that they, if you're a large employer, they might be sitting on five cases where they're a fact finder for this employer. Also, now they're mediating a case where it's the same employer. And we do these mediation memos and we reveal our positions in front of a mediating judge, right? And we have to be very careful, in my opinion, that you know it doesn't bleed over into the judge's fact finder. And the judges are very conscious of this, but I'm always concerned about some kind of subconscious bias. I think that's an excellent point. And I think that there is a whole strategy that should be thought of in terms of mediations. I think that a lot of people go into these things where they get the hearing notice, the mediation notice, and say mandatory mediation, and they have to show up. And then they may show up in front of a, a judge who is acting as a mediator who's not really equipped or, to your point, is not really inclined to be too receptive to your position. And so I think that there's a real strategy. So just because you are scheduled for a mandatory mediation doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do the mandatory mediation. What you may want to think about is doing a voluntary mediation in front of a judge that you feel is more receptive to your position. So it makes all the difference in the world. Right. And a judge who might not be from the area and who might be a little bit more neutral um, with regard to a certain employer. Um, so definitely something to keep in mind. Um, so there's, it's a, I think in talking about managing risk, just to, to bring this point home, 
it's multifactorial. There's a lot. There's a, there's a lot of other things that we haven't talked about that can be done before cases are uh, put in litigation. And when you are in litigation, there's a lot of things to think about. I think the worst thing that you can do is just sort of reflexively go through the motions and be carried along by the other side. I think you proactively have to take steps to uh, change the momentum in your favor. You know, your example of going out and uncovering information is really the kind of proactive stuff that really changes the game. And right. the more that you can try to be proactive and think about things, the better off you are. And I think partnering with defense counsel and getting them involved in your business and getting them to know your business is really the best thing that you can do because it will pay off. Absolutely. I think risk is always going to be out there. It's how you approach risk and whether you're proactive in dealing with risk is going to determine the outcomes that you're going to face. And, you know, I think everything is more outcome oriented and, and metrics are being applied across the board. And I think it's, it's much more, everyone's much more aware of it now than they were 15 or 20 years ago. So, you know, good outcomes depend on partnering with, you know, good defense counsel and, and working together and trying to, you know, achieve those outcomes. Well, I enjoyed speaking uh, about all these things with you today. I really right. enjoyed it. I had a great time. Look forward to the next one. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Pete. Thank you for tuning in and listening to Weber Gallagher's Workers' Compensation Academy. We hope you join us for our next episode to learn more about managing risk to improve your bottom line. If you would like to listen to this podcast again, share it with others, or tune into other episodes in the series, please visit our website at www.wglaw.com.